0: Uh, Let's get started tonight in in our little ongoing series, the the unofficial one-and-done series, words that appear in the Greek New Testament uh, and then don't appear again, and tonight will be no exception to that. I have bent the first couple of weeks. I've went two different directions with how we handle that um, or what kind of word we're using in this hapex logamina which is what this is technically called. It's uh, heard once from the Greek uh, and then not heard again. Uh, a apex can appear in any language, not just Greek, English, French, Japanese, whatever. Any body of work in which a word appears once does not show back up again in that author's work or within that context. And the New Testament is a contained uh, body of work. And so we get to look inside the entire corpus of the New Testament to try and find these words. That runs me from gospels and epistles and we might be in the apocalyptic. Um, this week we're going to be in the epistles. We've spent some time in the gospels thus far, um, but we're going to go to a word to tonight and I am going to approach this one a little bit differently. The word is vital in helping us to understand a passage, but we're going to kind of come in through the back door a little bit in that I want to, I want to talk to you about doubt Uh, In fact, our title tonight is called The Double-Minded Man. If you're familiar with the King James verbiage, you know that the phrase, the double-minded man, appears in the epistle of James. And that ought to tell you where we're going to be tonight. We will be in James' little letter. And James has a reputation um, among grace circles of being a little contrarian to some of the things that the Apostle Paul says. Um, Some people even see James and Paul a little bit at odds. I'm not so sure about that. Um, that's for another time, I guess. Uh, um, James is most certainly a guy who is not focused in the way that Paul is, in the way that he writes. Paul's very Christ-centric, a very Christocentric epistle writer. And that he puts Jesus at the center and then he sort of moves everything out to, to, of the way so that Jesus stands alone. James is not writing so much in that vein, but writing a little more to the dispersed Jewish believer Um, because he even says to those brethren spread abroad from the 12 tribes. So think of it in terms of a guy writing in the early part of the New Testament canon, James, who probably writes first, and he's not writing with the revelation of grace to the extent that Paul writes with, and he's not as Christocentric in his theology, which is why he feels a little more works from time to time, but he's a Jewish man who knows Christ. Christ is in his book. For sure you can find him there and grace is in his book but not to the extent we get accustomed to reading through the voice of paul so that's a, so just take that with a grain of salt when you read james and understand that okay all that's an aside that's just introduction i just wanted to throw that in so that you would understand why um james feels differently if you've ever read it And if you haven't please do it's a diff, it's a book that will feel different and sound different than anything you've read from paul and that's why that's that's on purpose we need different voices Hey, we need to hear the same note through a different instrument. So it's okay that James doesn't sound like Paul. But James lays out a few things that has um, given us some issues, in not just in the circle of grace and new covenant, but in some other ways in which we approach our walk. The double-minded man passage, which we'll read tonight, is one that has been used to try and persuade people away from doubt. And I think that doubt is faith's best friend. (laughs) Um, Doubt is what you have in moments of crisis in your life. When you come up against something you don't understand, maybe a struggle or persecution, something bigger than you, and you bring all your life to that moment and it runs into that moment and that moment knocks your your faith down because you believed something very firmly and then things don't go according to plan and they don't work the way they're supposed to work, supposed to work. And you can get floored with doubt. You start to wonder if you were wrong, you start to wonder if you've missed it somewhere. Maybe you're not reading the right verses or you're just not believing in the right way. Doubt is that thing that creeps in when you start to hear other opinions and they don't line up with your pastor or your mom and dad. Or your Bible teacher or the way that your Sunday school teachers told you and they've got this whole other world of information science and history and archaeology and all of these things that they're they're laying out facts and figures and you're stacking it up against everything you know from the biblical stories and then you run crashing into this wall and you go I don't know how to overcome this and you get flooded with doubt and Doubt causes people to be scared. They're scared that they don't really believe right. That they're not the Christian they thought they were. And it's easy then to say, well, if I'm wondering about this, maybe I'm not as saved as I thought I was. Maybe I'm not taking this serious enough if I'm doubting in the face of all of these things. Um, let me start with a quote tonight. Peter Enns, uh, author that wrote a book I've probably over the last, what have we been doing this here, five years? I've probably suggested eight or ten books to you, maybe, in five years. Put this one on the list. If, if you are looking for good, easy-to-read books that uh, will help you wrestle. Peter ends from the sin of certainty. I love this line. Doubt is only the enemy of faith when we equate faith with certainty in our thinking. <laughs> let me... Let me work on that for just a second because this is something i've been saying to you for a couple of three years through a bunch of different sermons and i only recently read this book so this was one of those moments where i read something that i'd been saying and went ah that's a great way to say that and 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 so then i I wanted to use it because i thought it was a good place to get us started tonight Um, I can't speak for this author and so I can't elaborate on what he means. So all I can really say is what it means, what that means to me. and, And what that means to me is faith isn't in trouble when you doubt unless faith for you is defined as being right. So if for you faith is I'm right about stuff, I know this and this and this and this and that's my faith, Doubt will destroy that because doubt makes you wonder if you're right. And if faith equals being right, then doubt is your enemy. Because you don't want your rightness to get messed up. (laughs) But if faith is not about being right or it's not about being certain, then doubt's okay. In fact, doubt becomes the engineer's bridge test like the engineer has a stress test on that bridge before they clear it for traffic. You need a lot of doubt going into that test. Like if there's doubt, we need to test it. Like we need to know what this bridge can t- We can't just risk it and go, hey, you know, I think it's pretty close. Um, a couple of those trucks might be too big, but you know, cross your fingers, we'll see. What's the worst that can happen at that moment? You need doubt to stress that because it's not about getting it right. It's about being, it's, it's about that being trustworthy. And so in that case, it's about it being right. But what do we really mean? We got to be able to trust that this works. And so, um, faith is trusting God. Faith is not understanding God. So if you wait around to understand God and call that faith, then to the point of what Nolan and I were discussing some of the some things about theology and God tonight and at the end of the day there's a lot about God and his ways that we don't know and that we can't know and it's not because God is playing hide and seek or he's being intentionally vague it's just that he is not us. And His ways are so far beyond us, and He dwells in the realm of the eternal. He had to take on human flesh to move into this timeline. And so we can't fully know everything about the God who exists in both places at the same time any more than we can be absolutely sure about what it looks like to be on the other side of death. I mean, I can give you some good ideas and some Bible, but I can't with absolute certainty tell you any more than I can tell you those things of God. So my faith isn't built on understanding God because if it's built on understanding God, then the minute I don't understand God, my faith's gone. So once again, let's let faith be something else. Let faith be the trusting of God. That God is good. That God is love. That God has your best interests in mind. That God has a plan laid out for you. That he's a father who cares for you. And you can trust all of that. You don't have to understand all of that. You can trust all that. And then when doubt comes in about the stuff, maybe it's doubt about a scripture, or doubt about the nature of that, or doubt about whether this is... You can, you can let all the doubts go to work. But at the end of the day, my faith isn't rocked by my doubt because my faith isn't built on being right. I trust God. And if I trust God, I can doubt Him and trust Him at the same time. I can even doubt that I understand Him and still trust Him at the same time. And, and maybe some of this has been because of some of our terminology. like Things like, and we've said this a lot in Grace, right believing leads to right living. Okay which I think um, isn't necessarily the case. I used to say that for sure. If you believed right, you'd live right. I'm not entirely sure that's the case. And I also am not sure that at the end of the day, that really helps you all that much anyway, because the end game of Christianity is not right living. So if right believing leads to right living, what's next? Um, Then we take that to the next degree, because I know I have, and we go, well, right thinking would lead to right believing. So let's change the way you people think. Let's give you some new verses. Here's some new Bible. You haven't been reading this part. If you could change your thinking, you'd change your believing. If you change your believing, you'd change your living. The problem is that leads us straight into the legalism of being right. The legalism of being right. Being right becomes our end game. I've gotta be right so that I believe right, so that I live right. It's all about being right. And then when someone comes along and goes, you know, you might not be right about that. The whole thing just kind of shakes and uh oh, wait a minute. If I'm not, cause, cause the next step is it's dominoes. If I'm not right about that, then what if I'm not right about that? And then maybe I'm not right about that. And uh oh, you can see what's happening here. My right belief, my right thinking is not right. Now my right believing is not right. You know what's going to happen next. And that's actually how a lot of people get warned. Go, if you listen to these voices, you're not even going to be living for God in a couple of years. They're not wrong because they taught you to think right leads to believing right leads to living right because the end game of Christianity is being right. So they're right. If you listen to these other voices and start doubting, you're not even going to be living right at the end of this because take that in reverse all the way back to that thing that made you doubt. Think if you wouldn't have listened to that. It wouldn't have screwed up the way you think, which wouldn't have messed up the way you believe, which wouldn't have messed up the way you live. Where do we get this? Well, I mean, if there's people, we, we really want to be right. <laughs> we want to do the right thing. We want to live holy in front of the Lord. But what's, what's the cause of this sort of thinking? Maybe it's Stuff like this. And this is why we're picking on James tonight. And we're not really picking on him. We're picking on a translation. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, and then we're going to read through verse 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It is wisdom, Right? If you lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it liberally. He'll give it without reproach. But this is the key, six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. And that's enough cannon fodder right there. To shoot doubt down so that no doubt allowed. Because the Bible says in James 1, that if you're going to ask from God, you should ask in faith, not in doubt. That if you doubt, doubt weakens your faith. And that if you doubt, you you say you have faith, but you really have doubt. Well, then you're double-minded. And you're thinking one thing and you're believing another or you think you're believing one thing while you're wrestling with another, well, you're just unstable like water. You're like a a ship tossed on the sea, back and forth in the waves of a storm. And because you're double-minded, because once again, let's reverse engineer this, because you're double-minded, don't expect that God's gonna give you anything (laughs) because God only gives it to people who ask without doubt. Now, that's just enough For us to say, doubt's a bad thing, stay away from it. If anything you hear or read causes you to doubt, run from it. Go right back to unquestioned loyalty and being right about things because doubt's going to mess up your prayer life. Doubt's going to mess up your walk. And doubt's going to, here's the biggie, doubt is going to keep you from receiving the good things of God. Because it's what it looks like James says. Doubt is going to mess you up. Let me repeat. Doubt is not the enemy of your faith. It's only the enemy of being right. And what if faith has little to do with being right and has a whole lot more to do with trusting God. And then in the midst of your doubt, trust isn't affected by your doubt because trust is the heartbeat of who you are in this walk. So let's talk about our hay packs tonight, our single word, our heard once and gone word that actually appeared in this spot. But before, I don't mean to tease you with it, but before I show it to you, I want to work context a little bit. And, and, here, and I want to do that because I want to show you, first of all, that a lot of times we're getting hit with scriptures. We're not seeing them inside of their context. And so we're seeing them pulled out of their context and then used as a weapon. Okay, and so if you take something out of its content, it's, so it's like pulling a quote. We, we, we do this all the time with news and social media. You pull a quote from someone, you put it up as the headline, and then you go back and actually read the interview and go, wait a minute, that's not, that's not what they, they said that, but they also said this and this and this right in front of that, and then this and this after that. Kind of changes the whole context, but that doesn't make for as good of headlines. And unfortunately, we've sort of preached headlines and taught headlines. And so it's easy to just say this. Don't doubt. Your faith is weakened if you do. You're double-minded man. You're unstable in all your ways. Bless God. If you're questioning this. You <laughs> missed out. Okay. So that's not the way to do it because that's not the way James wrote it. It wasn't a headline. It was inside of something else. So let's start at the top because you know we're not that far from the top. We're in verse 5. Here's the four verses in front of that. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. This is the dispersed Jewish family they've come to christ but james is writing not to what we would call quote unquote christians but what we would say are first century jews this very first generation who come to jesus greetings my brethren count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete Lacking nothing, and we have no reason to believe that this doesn't follow the action, the events that occur in, in Acts eight when Stephen is stoned to death, and they start to finally leave Israel, Jerusalem, and and the first set of apostles go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost part of the earth, just like Jesus told them to do in Acts one. The ripples on the pond begin, and they they they, they flee Jerusalem, and they they disperse the, the tribes, disperse among. The cities and villages of Israel. At some point, James writes a letter to those dispersed ones who are now undergoing the first wave of persecution. So this persecution for following the way. And so they're starting to be imprisoned. They're starting to be beaten. uh, They're starting to be martyred. They're paying a price for following the Lord Jesus Christ. James tries to get them to count it a joy when they fall into that trial. Paul will do better with this because Paul's got a fuller revelation. Go, Paul will take you all the way up to we've been chosen to suffer for Jesus, to suffer with him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And so Paul takes it all the way to don't look at it like you're being persecuted. Look at it like you get to be persecuted. Okay. James tries to say that through that lens. Just count it joy when you fall into a various trial. You know that the testing... This is a key word right here. Don't forget it. Testing. Know that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lack nothing. So James sees an endgame. game. Look at what's going on in your life as a way of producing a patience in you. Remember that the Lord Jesus, Luke tells us this, that Jesus says in your patience you possess your souls. Your, your, the whole, the psyche the whole seat of your emotional man in patience. And if you've ever lost patience, you know what happens. We almost always lose our emotions. We almost lose control. So what Jesus is telling us is that as we endure, as patience grows, so does our capacity to hold on to our own soul. And so James says, so as you let patience have its perfect work, it builds you up, it makes you complete. Let the persecution you're going through create something in you. All right. So the context is persecution. Trials. Trial by fire. Be patient. I know it's rough right now. I know you don't know why you're going through it. But you're going through it. And you have a God that hasn't forgotten about you. That leads to verse 5. That's the next verse. If you lack wisdom, well then let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. And so James says you're going through it, it's rough, it's working on your patience, it's making you better people, at the end of the day you're gonna be more complete. If you can't comprehend it and you're struggling with it, go to the Father, go to God, who liberally gives to everyone who asks. And liberally is the word you can underline. Because here comes our hay packs for the night. This is a word that appears only in James chapter 1, verse 5. Never appears again in any other moment of the New Testament. And yet we all think of God as a, a, a God of generosity. A God who gives liberally. But James, James uses a Greek word that gets translated into this. And I want to show you how. Sometimes... If we had a better way, this is what we're trying to do with this every week. We're not trying to shoot holes in the text. What we're trying to do is show you that sometimes if we had a little bit better way of translating, it might shift the ground under our feet a little bit. It might give us a little more sure place to land. And it's amazing to me how one word can open up and, and bring some clarity into a passage. So let's take a look. Liberally is the Greek word haplos. Most translations translate it as, and I looked at several today, and most of them were generously. King James, New King James, liberally, so I used liberally, but both of those are pretty much the standard. And it uses it to show that God will give you all the wisdom you need. And James says, if you ask without doubting, so if you ask God without doubting, He'll generously or liberally give you everything you need. And my statement is this doesn't help much because it, it hasn't helped us clear the clouds around James 1. Well, haplos is used over 1,500 times in other Greek ancient literature and never another time in the New Testament. And of those 1,500 times, only nine of those other times does haplos mean anything resembling the word generously? Most of the time, it means singularity or singleness. Some, some scholars have even said singleness of mind or singleness of intent. And that interpretation, singleness or singularity, takes context into account. Okay. If you have a word appears one time in the Greek, and then a 1,500 times in other literature, and most of the time in other literature, it means this. And a couple of times in the other literature, it means this. It's odd to take the couple of times as the way you translate it, the one time you see it in the New Testament. It would seem that we should have at least considered that maybe it meant what it meant most of the time everywhere else in the world that the word was being used. So I'm not trying to, to, to diss the translation. I just want you to consider that if this word, most of its usage in the known world of ancient Greek literature meant singularity or singleness of mind, what happens if we plug that in and remember context? James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all haplos. Let him ask of God who gives to all with singleness of mind. The same James that a few verses later is going to say, in God, there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Same chapter. God doesn't vary. God doesn't turn. He is what He is. Okay. He gives to everyone with a singular and and singleness of mind approach. But you need to ask in faith without doubting, because if you doubt, you're like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Don't let that man suppose that he's going to receive anything from the Lord because he's not single-minded. That man is double-minded. James is playing off of the single-minded giving of God versus the double-minded asking of man. The text is not about doubt. The text is about singularity and duality. It's about the way God gives and the way we approach life. So, So it has little to do with doubt and has a lot to do with how we, and what's the context? What's the problem with the audience? What are they going through? Persecution. They're dying. They're, They're barely making it. And they go to God and say, we need you. We need help. And James goes, good, go to God. He's singular in his help for you. It's the only thing on his mind is helping you. It's not the only thing on your mind. So you need to make a choice. Think of it like this. In this context, the double-minded man dwells on his trial and his trust. Context, he dwells on his persecution, that's what he's going through, but he also has his faith. What did I tell you? Call faith trust, right? So the double-minded man has both his trial and his trust rather than only his trust. If he were singular of mind, it would be about trusting God. But when we are double-minded, it's not simply about trusting God. It's about figuring out how to get out of our trial. We're told to be the way God is, single-minded. So, you got to pick one. (laughs) You got to pick trial or you got to pick trust. I don't mean you have to pick one and you'll only get one. You're going to go through the trial anyway. But if you could be as God, singular of mind, you could go into the trial, trusting God no matter what, rather than go into the trial to understand the trial and to trust God. Wisdom is not knowing how to survive. Wisdom is knowing how to trust. So think of it in this way. I'm going through this, whatever this is, insert your own problem. I'm going to my father who has my best interest in mind. He's not got 12 things in mind for me. He's got one thing in mind for me. And I'm going to my father trusting that he has this. Sounds easy. (laughs) But we don't often do that. Here's how I pray too much. Okay. Too often in my life, I say, Lord, I'm going through this and this and this. we got this problem and that problem and this issue. And I need clarity. Like, I need an answer. I need to know what to do. But the truth is, is that I don't. I don't need an answer. I don't need clarity. I don't need to know what to do. I need to learn to trust him. And if I can't learn that lesson, I approach every one of my issues as a double-minded man. I both believe God, but i got to understand it. And one of the reasons why I can't have peace in the midst of my trial is that I demand to know why I'm going through the trial. i got to know, should I turn left or should I turn right? i got to know what I'm doing. I need clarity. And clarity is what most of us are trying to achieve. It's another fancy, churched-up way of being right. I just want to be right. I want to get it right. Following Jesus isn't about getting it right. Following Jesus isn't about understanding it all. It's not about clarity. It's about trust. Whenever we go to the Father, what we get from the Father is a single-mindedness. God gives us all of who He is. He doesn't give us two versions. He gives us just one the one that loves us and takes care of us. That's all we have to trust in. When Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field, they don't toil and they don't spin and yet they are clothed. Consider the birds of the air, they don't put seed away in barns and yet your father feeds them. And Jesus says, are you not more valuable than many birds? Are you not more valuable than many flowers? I've thought before, Jesus' audience must have thought, this is such a weird illustration, like birds and flowers. I mean, yeah, of course we're better than birds and flowers. They're birds and flowers. But if you think about it, what Jesus does is he goes and finds two illustrations of things that don't think about anything. I mean, consider that. Consider the lilies. They don't consider anything. They just are lilies. They, they're just birds. You don't think about being birds. They're just birds. It's a lot like when Jesus says, come as children. You know, just come entirely dependent, lowest end of the totem pole, just singular of mind, and trust me. Trust me. That's all you got to do. Is trust me. I want to understand you. No, you don't need to understand me. That's double-minded. That's thinking that you got to bring two things to the table. My faith and my understanding. And that if I could get more understanding. Because let me ask, what would happen if you got more understanding? Would you get more faith? Is in some way that not a faith built on seeing the miraculous? Is that not a little bit Israel in the wilderness? Oh, we'll believe but we're going to have to see God do something. And Jesus comes into the world and the gospels going, why is it that you people won't believe unless you see? Well, he knows the answer because they're double-minded because we both want to understand and we want to believe. And we think that if we understood more, what would happen to our faith? I mean, if your faith is built on being right, what happens when you're right? Where's your faith go? Through the roof. What happens when you're not so sure you're right? Your faith crumbles. And this is why our faith has got to be built on more than come down here to our church because we've got it figured out. We know what's right. We know how we like the people that God likes. We know who God's, what side God's on. And it can get real sneaky. We know how God would act. We know how Jesus would vote. We know how this should look right, 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 right. Understand, 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 understand. Faith grows as my understanding grows. Please have a better source for your faith. I think clarity and being right and understanding because all of that stuff is going to come up against doubt and it needs to. And when it does, it'll lose in trying to be right. But if your faith is built on trusting that you have a good father, he loves you. He has you and your best interest in mind. He's singular when it comes to you. He didn't have 12 agendas, he has you. You are his agenda. And your faith is built on that, then you can trust that though the world around me shakes and goes to hell, I shall not be moved. Why? Because I don't have to understand what I'm going through. I don't have to know how to get out of it. I just trust he's got me. He singularly is thinking of me. I'm not singularly thinking of him. I'm dually thinking of how to get out of this hellhole and how to believe in God. Instead of... And our Old Testament prophets, if you want to know why you ought to read the Old Testament sometime, because the ones that were... the, the, The prophets we remember... We're most often singular of mine, man. It's, it's the end of Habakkuk. Though there is no fruit on the tree, there the, though there is no herd in the stall, though there are no flocks in the field, yet will I rejoice in the God of my salvation. Though God slay me, yet will I trust him. That's singleness of mind. I don't understand any of this. I don't know why. I'm going through hell. I don't know what I did wrong. Doesn't matter. Still trust God. So we ask, and he who gives, he who is singular in His giving. Now, I told you a moment ago to remember the word test. All right? That wasn't just, I wasn't just flying by the seat of my pants there. I do fly by the seat of my pants a lot. But that wasn't one of them. The test that they're going through in the first part of James is not from God. Because if it were from God, then they would need to be asking God why. And, you, and asking God why and trusting God are not, The same thing. So asking God why and trusting God could be considered double minded. So I'm saying all that to say this when we talk about doubt in the context of James chapter 1, it's not, boy, I'm not sure about that or I'm not sure about that. James is using doubt as a way of expressing double mindedness of a man who cannot receive the singularness of who God is, instead focuses himself either on the trial or on the trusting. How do we know it's not God doing the testing? Look just a little farther down in James. James, the same chapter, go down to 12. Blessed is the man that endures the temptation because when he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord promised to those who love him. That's all God asks right there. Just, just, just love me. That's trust me. You don't have to understand any of it. But don't you dare say when you're tempted, I'm tempted by God. Because God doesn't tempt anybody with evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So James, who introduces the chapter by saying you're going through a test. Tempt and test are the same word, by the way, in the Greek. So James goes, you're going through a test. Just go to God who singularly has you in mind. And go to God with singleness of mind. Don't go to God double-minded. You don't have to figure it out. Just trust him. And don't you dare say it was God testing you. Because if it was God testing you, you have a right to know why. But it wasn't God testing you because God isn't testing. He's walking through tests with you. His singularity is you. You are that singularity. You are what he's looking for, working towards. All right, well, that's James. Let's... Let's make a little more robust revelation of grace and turn to Paul who has a way of fleshing things out in words that are a little, maybe a little more convenient to our ear. Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll close. And I, I want to remind you, Paul doesn't use haplos. He doesn't use the same word. That would defeat the point of my whole haypax tonight. This word only appears here. I wish we had translated it differently than than liberally, maybe if it had been singularness of mind or singleness of mind, we would have contrasted God's way of thinking with our way of thinking. That would have helped. Paul does a little better job, even though he doesn't use the same word. He uses the same concept from Philippians chapter two. Look at these eight verses. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of spirit, if there's any affection, if there's any mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Having the same love, being of one accord, being of one mind. I know he doesn't, use, he doesn't use haplos, but let's just consider one mind as a single mind. Singularness of mind. Let's just keep this one thing. Don't let anything be done through selfish ambition. Don't let anything be done through conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let every one of you esteem himself others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. And then he's going to introduce Jesus into the mix. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. New King James, a little sloppy there. Probably a little closer. is a little closer. Who being with God, did not think it was a thing to be grasped to hold on to his divinity. So, Jesus lets go of his divinity. In fact, the Greek here, this is a fun one. This is a freebie. This is not a apex, but this is one that's used elsewhere. When Paul says, didn't think he should hold on to his divinity, there's, in the Greek, it's, it's close to this to let go. It's like letting something go out of your hand. And when Jesus says, a man's life consists, and more than the things that he possesses, he uses the same Greek word. So Jesus says a man's life consists of more than what he can hold on to. And so it's Jesus lets go in heaven of his divinity. The same way that Jesus tells us to let go of anything else in our lives that we, that we need to let go of. So, that's verse six. He didn't consider robbery. He made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus comes with singleness of mind. He lets go of what he was to pick up who he is. And what he asks of us, Paul says, let's come to him in one mind, with the same mind that was in Christ, to let go of all that we held on to so that we can be what we are called to be. If you put that with James, let go of your need to know. Let go of your need to understand and come to him and trust him that he's not testing you, but that he has you in the test, that he has stepped into your stuff so that you can receive of his fullness. So don't fear that doubting individual aspects of your rightness make you a double-minded man. But I will say that I think more of us than we've ever really considered Approach the things in our life through a double-mindedness in that we so often approach it to understand and to trust and We need to just get rid of the need to understand and learn to trust Let's pray that Okay, let's pray that together. I'm I'm just got a sneaking suspicion that it's probably you too. It's probably you as well I know it's me who needs a refresher that I've been double-minded more often than I'd like to admit. And I want to let go of that part of me that needs to, to be in the know and in the right and just trust Him, all right? Let's pray that, and I pray it for you, and I'm going to pray it for those watching and listening as well. Father, thank you for this word tonight that really was birthed, has been birthed in me for a few years of just wrestle, 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 and, and realizing that, My faith hasn't gotten weaker through wrestling. My faith has gotten stronger, not because I'm figuring out answers, but because I'm coming to the place where I realize figuring out answers doesn't have anything to do with it. And that's freeing me up, and it's letting me just trust you that you're a good father. But tonight, looking at this word and how James lays it out, well, that forces me to deal with something. And that dealing is that I've so often come to you wanting to understand everything, needing clarity, needing answers, because there's this little bitty part in me that's bigger than I'd like to think, but it's there. And it's, it likes to be right. And it really wants to know what's up. And I, I want to trust you whether I ever get to know what's up or not. Forgive me for where I've been double-minded for where I've come to you to understand so that my faith can grow (laughs) as if my faith couldn't be strong enough if I didn't understand. May I receive of your singleness and know that you have nothing but my best interests at heart and that you're not testing me, but you're going through the test with me. And I pray that for me and I pray that for this room and I pray that for all who will watch and listen. In Jesus' name, amen.